Hello again and welcome back to The Pisky Trap, a new series where we explore the folklore, history and legends from across Devon and Cornwall. Now, I should say at the outset that this episode is going to be slightly different in that some of the stories that we'll be looking at in this series can be quite out there, quite caught up in the world of myth and magic. But in this instance, we're going to be looking at real historical events surrounding a real individual from not that long ago, less than 150 years ago in Cornwall. And I suppose the moment that you're dealing with a real-life individual, there's a duty of care there, in the sense that you want to try and do justice to their story and to try and tell it in a balanced way. And so I hope that I managed to do that. A little while back, when the country was still in a state of lockdown, a mate of mine had given me this book, which was called A Grim Almanac of Cornwall. Uh, and it's a great book. I recommend it if, like me, you're, you're fascinated by the darker side of history. And in there is lots of grim facts from over the centuries, all based in Cornwall. And in there was one particular story that jumped out at me. And it's centred around a woman who was executed at Bodmin Jail in the 1870s. Something about this story immediately jumped out at me and... I began doing a bit of research straight away. And instantly I came up with lots of different ghost stories that were attributed to this particular individual and to the jail itself. And so it seemed like a perfect story to include in this series. Bodmin Jail is one of those places that I was always aware of growing up in Cornwall. And I can remember seeing big posters for events and things that were going on there when I was walking along the Camel Trail and places like that. But I didn't really know much about it as a place. I'd seen it featured on documentaries and things like that and was always aware that there were lots of um, spooky stories attached to it. But this was an opportunity for me to find out a little bit more about the jail itself. But I wanted to pick out one particular individual and one particular story in this instance, and then to try and get behind all of the spooky stories and try and find out about the real events that might have led to these stories springing up. So without further ado, I'll give you our second episode, The Case of Selina Wodge. I thought I'd begin by giving some context and looking at the history of Bodmin Jail itself. So the jail appears to have been built in 1779, constructed by prisoners of war, and overseen by an engineer called Sir John Call. And the whole project um, seems to have been, frankly, a massive revolutionary undertaking and I've got a quote here from the jail's own website which says the following and I quote 
The resulting building was a milestone in prison design, based on the plans and ideals of the prison reformer John Howard. It was one of the first modern prisons in the UK, with individual cells, segregated male and female areas, hot water and light and airy areas for prisoners to live and work. The jails become quite well known over the years for the prisoners who were executed there. And I've looked into this and it seems that there were 56 recorded executions that took place at the jail between 1785 and 1909. And eight of those who were executed were women. The last hanging that took place was in July of 1909 when a man named William Hampton became the last man hanged in Cornwall. The building appears to have served as a jail right up until the 1920s, and during the First World War it was even used to house certain national treasures, including the Crown Jewels and the Doomsday Book, and it eventually closes in 1927, after which it has lots of different incarnations. It's used for storage, it's used by a haulage company, at one point it's even a bar and a nightclub, um, but in recent years, it's become known as an attraction and a museum. And recently, it's had a big overhaul, and there's even now a hotel where you can even stay in the jail. They've become well known for running a range of different tours, some that explore the history of the building, and others that look at the paranormal nature of the building as well, and some of the stories that are attributed to it. And they even offer what they call an after-dark experience, where you can stay for an overnight vigil. Now, when I was planning for this episode, I was put in touch with Kirsten Honey, who's the jail's paranormal manager and runs the after-dark events. And we had a Zoom conversation uh, a number of weeks back, and you'll hear an extract from that conversation a little bit later on. For a long time, there have been ghost stories attributed to the jail. And it's hardly surprising, to be honest, because if you were to look at it, it's big and it's imposing. And if you were to draw an image of a spooky jail, this is it, essentially. Now, I'm not going to go through all the different stories that are out there. But if you were to have a scout around online, you'll find that there's one particular story that keeps cropping up. And it centres around an apparition that's been seen by visitors to the jail as well as staff. This particular figure is said to reach out to children who then inquire about the identity of this woman that they can see who's crying and is wearing this long old-fashioned dress. It's said that women in particular claim to have been overcome by strong feelings of guilt and remorse that seem to wash over them projected, it's said, by this alleged female entity. And these sightings and these experiences are usually attributed to one unfortunate young woman named Selina Wodge. So it's Selina's story and the background to her case and the events that eventually led to her execution and the subsequent ghost stories that I wanted to look at in this episode. Well, I've put together a bit of research which is gathered from the jail itself and staff there, also Bill Johnson's book, The History of Bodmin Jail, as well as articles from the Royal Cornwall Gazette from around that time, and an article entitled 
The Trials of Selina Wodge by criminal historian Dr. Nell Darby. So, what do we know about Selina Wodge and the details of her life before she ended up at Bodmin Jail? We have a record of Selina's christening, and it seems that she was born to Thomas, who was a tin mine streamer who then became a copper mine labourer, and that her mother was called Mary, and that she was born in 1852 in the parish of Altonen, which is a small village on the eastern edge of Bodmin Moor. It's about, about seven miles from Launceston. Now that would make her about 26 in the year 1878, which is the year that she's accused of murder. She appears to have been a young single mother who was struggling to make it on her own and who had two illegitimate children that she had to support. There was John, who was aged about six at that time, and Henry, who was known as Harry, who was about two. Harry seems to have had some kind of disability, which meant that he had trouble with walking. And according to an article in the Royal Cornwall Gazette, which was from June of 1878, and I quote, When residing at home, the accused occasionally went out to work to enable her to maintain her children, her mother giving her every possible assistance, end quote. So it seems that Selina was staying with her parents some of the time, and that presumably her parents helped out with childcare when they could, but then she was finding casual work when it was available. However, it also seems that Selina was having to resort to admission to the workhouse in Launceston. It's worth saying that around this time in the 1870s, there wouldn't have been much in the way of support for a single mother who was trying to raise two children on her own. And alongside that, there was probably a huge social stigma around the fact that she had two illegitimate children as well, so it must have been very, very tough for her. That said, from what we can gather from the sources, and having chatted to a few people about this, the children are always described as being well looked after. Despite the obvious hardship that their mother was going through, they're always described as healthy and well-fed and clothed, basically cared for. In the summer of 1878, Selina leaves the workhouse and goes to visit her parents in Altonen. Now, at some point prior to this, it seems that Selina has struck up a relationship of sorts with a former soldier by the name of James Westwood. However, according to historian Richard Clarke, James claimed to have only met Selina on two previous occasions, once in December of 1877 and again in March of 1878, though I've been told that there were letters exchanged between the two of them, so perhaps they were keeping up this written correspondence, even if they couldn't meet up in person. Anyway, Selina had arranged to meet Westwood in Launceston on the 22nd of June. So on the 21st, she and the children managed to hitch a ride on a cart with a local farmer by the name of William Holman. And she says to Holman, and I quote, I'm going to meet my man. At this point, it seems that she's unaware Westwood has actually written to her to cancel their meeting because of work commitments. Some people think that he was working as an agricultural labourer at the time and might have been called back to work. So this man Holman drops off Selina and the children at a place called Orchard Coal Stores, which is just outside Launceston. And Selina says that she's going to walk the rest of the way into town. However, 
By the time that Selina reaches Launceston, which, according to the reports, was around 11am, she only has one child with her, the six-year-old John. According to crime historian Dr Nell Darby, Selina then goes to visit her older sister, Mary Ann Boundy, who's a widow, and she's also been an inmate of the workhouse. And I'm quoting here. She told Mary Ann, without being asked, that Harry had died from a head abscess and throat complaint and had been buried near the church door at Altonen, end quote. Later on, when Selina's on the road with John, she encounters some neighbours from Altonen who inquire about Harry and she tells them that the boy is in Launceston and then she carries on her way. Later that night when she's staying in a lodging house in Launceston where she's obviously stayed before in the past and knows people there, they start to ask her about Harry and she says, and I quote, it died out at mother's. So it's clear that whatever's happened, she's telling people very different stories here with regard to Harry's whereabouts. On the Saturday, Selina is admitted to the workhouse. And that evening, according to some accounts, the young John tells the nurses there that his mother had, and I quote, put Harry in a pit. So the next morning, the workhouse master, who's a man called Daniel Downing, asks Selina where Harry is, and she replies, and I quote, The man took it away from me, threw it into the water, and drowned it. End quote. And we have to assume here that the man that she's referring to is James Westwood. Now, Dr. Nell Darby makes an interesting point here by saying, and I quote, Despite it being later argued that Selina was a loving mother to her son Harry, her use of it rather than him suggests either that she saw him as an object rather than a boy, or that she was already distancing herself from her son, talking about him as an it so that she would not have to think too deeply about what had happened, end quote. Now, I'll let you make of that what you will, but there are several occasions where Selina is questioned and she refers to Harry as it, but whether we should think too deeply about that, I'm, I'm not sure. The police are later called to the workhouse, and Selina is then questioned by Superintendent Barrett, and the following comes from the Royal Cornwall Gazette, where Barrett states that he arrived at the workhouse around 1pm on the Sunday afternoon and he finds Selina lying in bed. And he says to her that he needs to ask some questions. He then proceeds to ask her whether she's left her boy with anyone else in the care of anyone while she's staying at the lodging house. And she replies, and I quote, I met a man in Launceston on Friday afternoon and we walked on the Trismaro Road together with my two children. And he took away my little boy, went into a field, and came back and told me he had thrown it into a pit where there were railings and had drowned it. Me and my boy ran away, and he came after us, saying he would drown us too. End quote. So here she's repeating this same story that she's given to the workhouse master of a man, presumably Westwood, who takes her child and drowns it and then threatens her and John. After asking his questions, Barrett leaves, and Selina's then left with Louisa Downing, who's the matron at the workhouse and also Daniel Downing's wife. Now, she's been there the whole time while the superintendent is asking these questions, and it seems that after the officers leave, 
Selina turned to her and said the following, and I quote, Oh, Mrs. Downing, I did it. I drowned the child. I put Harry into the water. When asked if she'd acted alone, she replied, Yes, Mum. There was no man there with me, no one but my little Johnny, and he began to cry. End quote. And this is backed up by the testimony of Jane Pethick, who is the schoolmistress at the workhouse, who said that she overheard the conversation between Louisa Downing and Selina, where Mrs Downing had said if she committed the act she'd better confess and not accuse anyone else, to which Selina apparently hesitates and then replies, I did it, but he put me up to it. An investigation is launched and pretty soon they find Harry's body at the bottom of a 13-foot well in a place called Moe Park. And they discover that the lid, which in some accounts is given as a, a, a series of wooden boards, has been placed over the well, which implies that it wasn't, it wasn't an accident. The discovery of Harry's body, alongside the fact that Selina has given differing accounts of Harry's whereabouts to people, and even confessed to staff at the workhouse, means that she is now the prime suspect. And so police return to the receiving ward and they charge her with Harry's murder. And apparently she makes no reply. Selina goes on trial on the 27th of July 1878 at the Cornwall Assizes, which is held in Bodmin, and she's charged with murder. And during this time, various witnesses are called, including James Westwood, who tells the court that he's never shown any ill-feeling towards either of the children and he denies any involvement or incitement to murder. Other inmates at the workhouse and her neighbours, they all come forward to give evidence of her good character. But despite that, it doesn't take long for the jury to reach a guilty verdict. They do give a recommendation for mercy, given Selina's good character and her, and I quote, previous love for her children. But in spite of this, the judge sentences Selina to death. Now, I've chatted to Chris Wilkes from Bodmin Jail about this, who, who seemed to think that the judge didn't really have much of a choice because there was so much evidence stacked up against her. And although there were like written petitions made on her behalf, he didn't really have at that time any option but to deliver the death penalty. And so, on the morning of the 15th of August, 1878, Selina is led to the gallows. And some sources say that she was, by this point, on the verge of collapse. And historians have speculated that this might have been because she was anticipating this big, baying crowd who'd all come to see her executed, and the idea that she was facing the prospect of this slow strangulation. Because that had been the case in the past, where... All the hangings had taken place outside the jail in public and the method at that time would have been for a short drop which would have meant a strangulation to death. But in this case, as it turned out, Selina was going to be the first execution carried out inside the prison walls and the executioner who was a man named William Marwood was going to be employing this new long drop system of hanging which is designed basically to make the hanging process, in theory, quicker and more humane. The following is from historian Richard Clark, who says, and I quote, Her last words were, 
Lord, deliver me from this miserable world. She held a handkerchief in her hand during the procession and execution, although by this time would not have been expected to drop it as a signal that she was ready. Marwood made the usual preparations and operated the lever plummeting her down at precisely eight o'clock, her lifeless body dangling from the beam for the next hour, still holding the handkerchief. End quote. So, what are we to make of Selina's case? And of these stories that her restless ghost is said to still haunt Bodmin Jail to this day, perhaps out of guilt and remorse for her crime? Over the years, she's been variously portrayed as either this cold and calculated child killer, or viewed by some as a woman who's basically that she was desperate, that she was obviously struggling, and that she perhaps saw what she did as her only way out because she had no other options, she had no prospects. I think that nowadays we can we can look at a case like Selena's and take into account the very, very difficult circumstances that she found herself in. And I would say that a majority of people that I've spoken to about her case have been quite quite sympathetic. But that wasn't always the case. There's an article by Aaron Hunt entitled Calculations and Concealments, Infanticide in Mid-19th Century Britain. And in it, Hunt talks about the idea that by the mid-1800s, there was this growing concern that child murder was on the rise. And one that moved away from this looking at economic circumstances or the, the idea that mothers might be innocent or even victims themselves but that they were basically ruthless and immoral. And he goes on to highlight an 1834 report on the Commission for the Poor Laws. So the Poor Laws are basically an act that's introduced in that year, 1834, which are, they're basically designed to get the, the homeless or the very, very poor off the streets and into the workhouse. Um, and they're encouraging people basically to support themselves, to work hard and better themselves is the idea behind it. And this report he's highlighting is in answer to critics who expressed a concern that there was going to be a vast increase in infanticide resulting from the fact that these new poor laws denied women a claim to any kind of support or maintenance for their illegitimate children. And this report confidently pronounced, and I quote, we do not believe that infanticide arises from any calculation as to expense. We believe that in no civilised country, and scarcely any barbarous country, has such a thing been heard of as a mother killing her child in order to save the expense of feeding it. End quote. So, essentially, there's this idea, or you could say this denial, that poverty or economic strain could be a factor in what drove actions like infanticide, that it was simply unthinkable at that time. Now, this is back in the 1830s. If all of these ideas and perceptions were already well in place by the time of Selina's case, which is 40 years later, then perhaps alongside all the evidence against her, was there also maybe this idea of setting some kind of moral example by executing her. After all, all these recommendations for mercy and all these petitions were ignored. Mm -hmm. 
to come back now to the jail itself and to the idea of these stories, this concept that Selena's restless spirit might still be haunting the building. A while back, I had a Zoom conversation with Kirsten Honey, who is the jail's paranormal manager. She leads the paranormal tours as well as the after-dark experiences and knows Selena's story well. And we got chatting about perceptions of Selena. I remember you telling me last time that you'd um, had an experience yourself that sort of changed your perception when it came to Selena a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her son on the glass and table. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't go out of my way to say tonight I want to connect to this one person. There have been anniversaries of hangings where, in fact, every anniversary of a hanging, I will go and I will sit in the building um, on what would be the night before, obviously going back in time to the actual day. Um, and I will, out of respect, sit with that building, you know, and if that person is there, I might not be aware of that, but hopefully they might be aware that I'm there just, just, just purely for them, just to sit with them as a human being sitting with another human being that's going through the worst point of their life. And so when I work on my nights and when I'm working in the building um, doing my job, I don't go out of my way to try to connect to a specific prisoner or a specific person because I find that that then pinpoints people and and I, I don't, morally, I don't think it's respectful to do that. So I just sit and whoever's there is there. And that one night with a little boy and I connected with him and I knew that there was somebody else with him. I knew that he was connected to the building. We had talked about it and I had established that he was definitely connected to somebody who had been a prisoner in the building. And that person was a female. I then, when I was just trying to focus him and ask him things, just general things like you'd ask any child, like, you know, what's your favorite toys? You know, did you play with toys that you had a favorite one just to you know, take away from this, you have to ask specific questions because you don't talk to people like robots, you talk to them normally. And I said, you know, I'm really sorry. I said, but you know, there's a little, there's a lady that I can see and she's standing in the doorway and I believe that that lady is, is you, you've brought that lady with you. She is somebody to do with you. And very quickly um, went on to establish that that was his mum that she had been the person who was in jail. And then I suddenly just got this overwhelming sense of emotion. And I and I think it was when I first read Selena's story, I had this, you, you get an emotion about any story you read. And that was the exact same feeling. And it took me, it, it took me back. <laughs> I have to say it took me quite aback. And I, I had to take a moment and and I felt, I just felt privileged that this so well-known person was standing in the same space and time as me that I, I knew she was there. And then it very quickly escalated to the fact that she was terrified of me. She, you know, she was scared. 
I was talking to her son. He wanted me to know that his mum was there. He wanted me to know that she was okay, but she was scared. So this lady, um, she just wanted to be accepted, if you like. She wanted that acceptance that she was okay and that you weren't going to hurt her. And I thought that was just so humbling. Um, and it, and I, it did. It broke me. I just, I felt, I felt so overwhelmed because here she is, this very quiet, genuinely quiet young woman who was scared of me. And I, I, I hated it. I didn't want her to feel scared of me at all or anybody, anybody at all. And it, it really made me believe that my first opinion of Selena was right and that she wasn't this awful murder, child murdering woman that went out of her way to kill her, her child. She genuinely just had, she just couldn't deal with the situation she was in and lives with that regret. She lives with that for the rest of her life. Um, and, you know, in the short space of time that she was alive between her crime and her being hanged, you know, it must have been awful for her to accept the re the reality, um, which I think she clearly did, of, of something so tragic and the situation she got herself in. And I think she, you know, she did live with that regret right till the end. Now, to me, this was all very interesting because whatever your stance with regard to the paranormal, um, I myself these days tend to think of myself as being quite sceptical. But one thing about this did strike me, and that was the idea that Selena might have been scared or even intimidated by a woman in a position of authority. That kind of makes sense if we consider that Bob in jail at that time did have separate male and female wings, and I'm assuming that there were female matrons or wardens that would have been working on the women's wing. So I think that's an interesting idea. And another thing that stood out to me here was this idea. It's easy to forget that Selena was still young. She was only 26. And perhaps the full realisation of what she'd done was starting to sink in. Perhaps something in those final tortuous days, as it all began to sink in, has crept into the fabric of the building, maybe. It's just a theory. Could that contribute to the tales of her restless spirit, who's said to wander the building? We then moved on to talk about Selena's relationship with James Westwood. There was something interesting that I remember you saying last time, which was, in terms of Selena's relationship with this guy, I think, was it James Westwood? Yeah. Um, you mentioned that there were, like, some letters that maybe um, yeah. reflected on, on because there's a little bit of uh, trying to try and understand what was going on with their relationship, because I remember reading one historian who um, claims that he, he had said that he'd only met Selena, like, twice before, and yeah. uh, almost placed down the relationship between them. What's your kind of slant on what was going on between them and what might have led to her feeling that she had no other choice but to kind of throw um, Harry down this well, essentially? Yeah. I mean, I certainly agree with the fact that, you know, relationships in those days, you know, they escalated very quickly. You know, there wasn't the time to spend, you know, months and months getting to know somebody. You either wanted to be that person or you didn't. And I think when you're a very young woman and you're desperate, 
um, to have support and to be accepted in society. When a man pays you attention, you're going to take that, you know, very willingly. And if you like him back and you feel that you can trust him, I think it would be very easy for somebody like Selena to, to kind of latch on to that person without it sounding vulgar. I believe that, you know, she did genuinely care for this man and she genuinely trusted him. And, you know, there were these letters that, that reflected that he made these promises that they were planning and building a life together. And it also, you know, could ring true by reading these letters that he did put duress onto her and say, you know, as an afterthought, maybe he's been down the pub and he's chatted with his friends while he's been away working, you know, kind of, you can, you can hear it like, mate, she's got these kids. They're not even yours. You're actually going to take them all on because that's a lot of money, a lot of responsibility. You're already giving the woman a a marriage and, and a home to live in and now you're going to take these kids as well you just get rid of them like it's simple just make her get rid of one you can kind of see it playing out um, and for whatever reason he comes back to her and says you know I want this I want this so much you know we are going to have this life together but I'm now not prepared to take both your children one of these children, if not both of them, need to go. I'm not going to take the responsibility. They're not my children. Why, as a man, should I do that? And I feel that she, you know, got into this situation with this man that had promised her the world, and the world is stability and reliability. And, you know, for want of a better kind of way to put it, acceptance in society we'll never know to what extent james may have pressured selena into doing what she did or whether she simply felt she had no other way out no other options and maybe that it was just simply an impulsive act that she in that state of mind she was in at that time felt she could no longer care for harry and did what she did it's hard to say for certain But coming back to the idea of these ghost stories, this idea that Selina might still haunt the jail, it's easy to understand how those stories could come about because if we think about what Selina was going through in her final days, the reality sinking in of what she's done, as well as the fact that she knows she's going to be executed, it's easy to understand how that can get trapped in some way within the fabric of a building. There's a theory called the stone tape theory, which is the idea that certain moments of intense emotional turmoil can somehow be trapped within the stones of a building, and perhaps years later or centuries later can be somehow replayed like a projection. Now, it's just a theory, But I can see how people might think that. And particularly in this case, where you've got the nature of Boardman Jail itself. It's a big, imposing building. And you know that people who were incarcerated there had been going through certain things. Could that be a factor? Or could it just be the fact that it's a big, dark building that, you know, appears scary? It's the power of suggestion, perhaps. 
I think many of us have been to places in the past where we kind of feel, oh, I don't don't necessarily like this building that much. Or we've heard stories about the place in the past and that maybe contributes to what we feel that we're experiencing at the time. Who knows? But to me, what's interesting is trying to understand the real individuals at the heart of these stories. And I think knowing more now about Selena's case, I'll let you make up your own minds with regard to the ghost stories and what you may think about Selena herself. Personally, I think that Selena was a young woman who was clearly struggling, who didn't have any support and was perhaps, you could argue, a victim of the society she found herself in and was perhaps perceived a certain way as a single mother trying to bring up two illegitimate children, and that she did what she did because she felt she had no other way out, and ultimately, unfortunately, ended up paying the ultimate price for it. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank Kirsten Honey and everyone at Bobman Jail for their help with this episode, and if you'd like to find out more, you can check out the reading list for this series. Join me next time where we'll be looking at Chambercombe Manor in Devon.